0: Fake news. We've been hearing a lot about it over the past few years, and I recognize that there are some well-known politicians who refer to anything they don't like as fake news or any media outlets they don't like as fake news, and thus fake news becomes to some any news that is unfavorable news. But fake news is a real thing. It's news which is deliberately created to misinform and to deceive readers. And with the rise of social media and Twitter bots and deep fake technology, it is a real and it's a pernicious thing. So there was a study done just recently that revealed 50% of high schoolers really can't discern the difference between what is obviously fake news and what is real news. It seems that TikTok is just as reliable as the Wall Street Journal. Now, more seriously, there was a a fake news story a little while ago that claimed that there was a Washington pizzeria, and that Washington pizzeria was actually the headquarters of a child sex sex ring run by Hillary Clinton. And a man went up there with his AR-15 and shot the place up because he believed the news. Or take the New York Post, which originally published the story on Hunter Biden's laptop. And some members of the intelligence community wrote a public letter and said this was all just misinformation by the Russians, right? The New York Times, the Washington Post took that and said, yeah, it's all fake news. And they buried the story. Only if you know the story, you know it, in fact, wasn't fake news. It turns out the acting former CIA director masterminded this fake news story in order to launch another fake news story, in order to protect Biden in the hopes that if he won the election, this man might receive that top post at the CIA. All right, so fake news. I think we all understand it's a real issue, whether that's in politics or whether or not, as we saw in pandemics. But friend, what about religion? Do you have a category for something like fake news and religion? And if so, what might that be? How do you spot it? What do you do with it? And how can you be sure that you haven't succumbed to it? Well, it's questions like this that are going to bring us back this morning to our study in the book of Titus. Let me invite you to turn there now, the New Testament book of Titus, which if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can find on page 998. 9.98 there in the seat backs before you. Now, if you're just joining us, this short letter was written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege, uh, Titus, rather, to Titus. I say this inadvertently, I'll mistakenly call Titus Timothy sometimes because of the earlier two pastorals. But this, written to Titus, the two of them, it seemed, administered to some small churches on the island of Crete. And then Paul had to head on off. And he left Titus there in order to complete some unfinished business. And as we saw last week, Titus' first order of business was to work with the churches to ensure that they appointed qualified leaders who live admirably and also teach accurately. And we're about to learn why that was so important. So look down with me to chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, and follow along as I read. Titus 1, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, For there are many, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, So it seems the churches here on the island of Crete were confronted with their own kind of fake news, if you will, in the form of false teaching. There were intentionally some that were out there to spread disinformation, a a kind of teaching deliberately crafted in order to misinform and to deceive the listener. And so what are these churches to do? Well, let's trace just for a moment the logic of Paul's argument. So churches need qualified leaders, we saw in the previous section. Why? Well, verse 10, we have the first reason. Why? It's because many are willfully deceived and they're leading people astray, he says. And so the response to that, verse 11, is that these individuals must be silenced. Why? Well, Paul restates it. He says they're upsetting the body by by teaching falsely. And then verse 12, he illustrates that with a quote from one of the Cretans' own prophets. Therefore, verse 13, in that verse 13, he's really just restating verse 11. Therefore, he says, rebuke them sharply so that purpose, right, they may be sound in the faith. And how are they to be sound in the faith? Well, verse 14, by not devoting themselves first to Jewish myths. And then second, by not devoting themselves to the commands of men who, who turn away from the truth. And then in verse 15 and 16, we get sort of another reason and Paul's going to say, listen, to the pure, all things are pure. But in contrast to the defiled and to the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Conclusion, therefore, they are unfit for any good work. That's just the flow of Paul's argument. And verse 16, we're going to see functions as a kind of hinge verse in the book. For unlike these defiled teachers who are unfit for any good work, Paul's going to go on and argue in chapters 2 and on in chapter 3 that these who have been washed and these who have been sanctified and these who have been purified by Christ are to what? Well, they're to be zealous for good works, unlike these who are unfit for any good work. And this is going to, uh, verse 16 really shifts us into one of the main sections of the book. And, and that's the focus on right living based on right teaching. So stepping back, I think we can just summarize Paul's argument here in these verses like this. Churches must silence false teachers who deceive the faithful by denying the gospel. I think that's just his plain argument. It's not particularly complicated. Churches must silence false teachers who deceive the faithful by denying the gospel. And as we think about our text, I want to step back and ask really three questions of it: What is a false teacher? How do we spot false teachers? And what do we do with false teachers? And friends, those three questions are going to serve as our simple outline. What is a false teacher? How do we identify false teachers? And what do we do with false teachers? All right, so first, let's take that first question. What is a false teacher? What is a false teacher? Well, Paul says, opening up in verse 11, he says that a false teacher is one who teaches what he says ought not to be taught. Now, in my office, I have something that some refer to as a, a plumb bob or a plumb line. It's this bronze weight at the end of a string, and the weight looks kind of like a cylinder, and it comes down into a point. And you attach to the other end of that weighted cylinder. You attach again this line and you hold the line out. You let gravity drop the weight down. And architects and construction workers, carpenters, they can use that to ensure that a wall is true, that a wall is straight. They use the plumb line for that purpose. Well, in the same way that carpenters construct walls that are meant to be straight so they can support a house, Well, Paul's saying pastors are to construct teaching that is straight such that it might support God's house, right? So that plumb line is in my office as a visual reminder that my job is to stay on the line with Scripture, right? True teaching, not straying from the line, not deviating from the path like many of the canoes yesterday. Those of you on the father-son float trip, you know what I mean. There were no canoe, very few canoes, maybe Ben Evans, maybe he was the only one, that actually had a canoe that was pointed in the right direction. The rest of us were doing circles, twirls, sandbars, right, all the rest. Paul's like, that's not how you're supposed to teach, right? Nice and straight and true. And apparently these false teachers, well, they they haven't done that. Notice verse 13, Paul says they're they're to be rebuked so that, They would be sound in the faith, which implies, of course, that these false teachers are not sound in the faith. Now, that word faith can refer in the Bible to one subjective sense of belief and trust and confidence and commitment, like when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, or if you know the old 80s hit George Michael, you got to have faith. That's how we often think of the word, but it also can be used, this word faith, as a body of doctrine, as a set of theological beliefs, like in Galatians 123, when it's said of Paul that he used to persecute us, and the one who did that is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Right Faith there in Galatians 1.23 is, is a set of personal theological convictions and, and biblical beliefs. It's about doctrine. And in the pastoral epistles, so first and 2 Timothy, and in Titus, this word faith is usually wor- used in that secondary sense of a specific set of theological beliefs and biblical doctrine. And false teachers, Paul's saying, are those who are not sound in their biblical beliefs. Which may strike some if you're visiting. That may strike you as an odd statement because we have a tendency to treat religion a little bit like ice cream. So I love strawberry or preferably strawberry chip by graters. Some of you know that. That stuff is golden. I don't know about you and Bluebell. I don't get that obsession. Graters is legit. But okay, let's not go there. Maybe you like chocolate. But the point is in the end, it's all ice cream and it serves the same purpose. And people think of religion similarly. It could be Catholicism or Buddhism or Unitarianism or Shintoism, whatever it might be. It's all religion. It all basically serves the same function. Religion is nothing more than matters of preference or what works or what suits us for a season. The assumption is that all religions are basically equal. But if that's you, I just want you to note how Paul Paul doesn't seem to buy that assumption. No, he rejects that notion. He understands that some religious teaching is sound, as in it's healthy and it's life-giving, whereas other religious teaching is not sound. It's life-destroying. And the danger we see is that these false teachers, verse 16, what? They they profess to know God. So with their mouths, they can offer up all kinds of religious language and, and spiritual jargon, but that doesn't make them A Christian. For notice in verse 15, Paul refers to these false teachers, how? As as unbelieving. They're unbelievers, Paul says. They may think they're part of God's people, but they're not. And friends, that is a terrifying thought. To go through life assuming you're traveling toward heaven only to die and find out you're trapped in hell. That's a horrifying thought, and Paul's helping us to see right here that just because teaching is spiritual and religious doesn't mean it's right. It's not finally a matter of what works for you. Paul's saying it's finally a matter of what's true, which means we have to be able to distinguish teaching from uh, false teaching from actual true teaching. We need to know what's sound and what isn't. And friends, that brings us to our second point. How do we identify false teachers? How do we, secondly, identify false teachers? And I think Paul gives us, not uh, explicitly, but I think built into what he argues here, he gives us kind of three tests. The tests of doctrine, of desires, and of deeds. So for you careful note takers, three subpoints to point two, I'm sorry. But he gives us three tests, three ways in which we can identify false teachers. He calls us to look to their doctrine, their desires, and their deeds. So the first test, their doctrine. Notice verse 15, or rather verse 10, Paul at the opening. Paul refers to these false teachers as empty talkers. As in, that's just another way of saying they're windbags. They're full of hot air. They're, they're cotton candy preachers. All sparkle, all shine, but, but no real substance to them. And with regard to what they're teaching, we're given the first clue of the content in verse 10 because he refers to them as of the circumcision party, which is our first indication that whatever this false teaching is, it's somewhat Jewish in its own nature. And we know from the historical record there were many Jews in Crete. And we know from Acts 15, we know from Galatians 2, there were some who were saying that in order to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew and and you needed to be circumcised. And then in verse 14, Paul speaks of these false teachers as those who are what they're devoted to. Notice, Jewish myths, which is an expression used back in 1 Timothy 1.4 when he refers to false teachers there as those who were devoted to myths and to endless genealogies, 1 Timothy 1.4. And then if you look at Titus 3.9 he's going to warn them later about those who are inordinately focused upon what? Upon genealogies. So, so perhaps the false teachers here in Crete were not that dissimilar from some who were in Ephesus and teaching that, you know, if you're, true, if you're a truly spiritual person, you need to be able to trace your biological lineage back to one of these guys. Or they had myths surrounding these figures and I, trying to identify with them. We're not exactly sure. But also note in verse 14, that these false teachers are what? They're devoted to the commands of people. Well, that right there seems to be an allusion to Mark 7, 7, which is a quotation of Jesus' grabs of Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. For in Mark 7, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees why his disciples eat without washing their hands, without doing the, their ceremonial, ceremonial washings, to which Jesus responds to these Pharisees, and he says... Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men." See, that commands of men, that seems to be the the language that Paul's grabbing here from Mark 7, 7. And Jesus there is going after the kind of rituals and regulations that many of us naturally add to Scripture. And similarly, Paul may be getting at that same idea. And given what he goes on to say in verse 15, Paul does about purity and about defilement, it's very possible he has particular foods in mind. So maybe these false teachers were forbidding the, uh, the consumption of certain foods. Maybe even like we see in 1 Timothy 4, they're, they're even forbidding marriage. In other words, they're advocating these false teachers are some kind of man-made asceticism. Right? You've got to live like a monk. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian way. And in doing so, they've made the cardinal mistake of mistaking asceticism and, and self-denial for true Pietism. And so notice the picture that's beginning to form of these false teachers. They're concerned more with human traditions, more with human regulation than they are concerned with divine revelation. And friends, when it comes to doctrine, that's a key test, I think, of a false teacher. Do they major on human regulations? Do they major just on past traditions? Or do they major on divine revelation? Is that what they're arguing? because my guess is these false teachers my guess is they were personable my guess is they were persuasive right they they looked as well i bet very pious so notice these false teachers were not the kind of people saying you know you just you do you right you live as you want live as you pre as you please cast off all restraint that wasn't their that wasn't their teaching no they they looked religious they're strict They would have been not licentious, live as you want, but they would have looked a little more perhaps like legalists, right? Not live as you please, but live as we think you ought to, which may strike that understanding of them as a bit odd, because Paul's going to quote one of their own prophets, Epimenides, and he's going to call them lazy gluttons, and we're like, so wait, wait. So at one level, they're legalists, and they have this strict observance to these food laws, maybe some other things, and yet at the same time, we read their lazy gluttons. How do, we, how do we think about those things together? But friend, sadly, if you know your life well, and I sadly know this to be true of my own life, it's not hard to become legalistic in certain areas of life while just ignoring large swaths of the rest of your life. So I can convince myself that I'm godly because I regularly pray and go to church even if I cheat on my timesheets at work. Or I can convince myself that I'm godly because I don't drink, smoke, or chew with run-who-boys-a-do, right, as they say. And yet I gossip all the time about my friends. I never think to share the gospel with my non-Christian friends at school, maybe. I can convince myself I'm godly because I'm an expert on the doctrines of grace, even though I might be prone to regularly blow up at my wife or exasperate my kids and be a little rough with them. I can convince myself I'm godly because maybe I've homeschooled my kids, even though I never really give myself to the spiritual well being of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I can convince myself I'm godly because maybe I rail against the culture wars. You know, I'm not woke even though I'm largely graceless and loveless to those around me and, and not transparent about my own addictions. Right? All of this, this focus on a few areas of life while ignoring large swaths of the rest of our life, Right? We can do that and we feel good about ourselves because we can point to these few areas and we can say, see, look how I'm living, I'm good. And we feel justified, right? We create the check boxes and, and we rather dutifully and righteously check those boxes even if the rest of our lives is a total mess. And that's where it's so easy to lower the bar and not even know it. It's so easy to exchange the demand to become like Christ with becoming just a little less like our culture. And when we do that, when we just sort of reduce Christianity to not sleeping around and not getting drunk and maybe showing up occasionally to a Bible study, when we're not careful, what we're doing is we're becoming slaves to the commands of people. And one of the telltale signs of a false teacher is that they've exchanged living Christ-like in all of life for living less like culture in just a few areas of life. Because that's what false teachers do. They love to reduce Christianity into a few manageable man-made disciplines, right? Do this and you'll be godly. In other words, they exchange again the revelation of God for the traditions of men. And that's part of how you sniff them out, part of how you recognize their doctrine. But notice, it's not just their doctrine and how you identify them. Notice, it's also their desires. That's the second test. It's their desires. For notice, Paul says they must be silenced, verse 11, because why? Well, they're upsetting whole families. And how are they doing that? By teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So certainly some of this teaching was happening in in these churches as they gathered, but when he refers to whole families, perhaps Paul has in mind other sort of more informal, more private gatherings, maybe their backyard barbecues, right, maybe their kids' play dates, however they did that in the first century, maybe he has those kinds of contexts in mind where these false teachers are there and they're just dripping their teaching upon members of the congregation, But notice, Paul says, the motive. What's the desire? It's for shameful gain, for dishonest gain, or what the King James Version memorably calls filthy lucre. Right. That's the motive. They have motives that are not for the maturity of these believers. You could even call them ministerial mercenaries in the sense that they're really just in it, it seems, for the money. Or maybe for the lust of power, right? They want the control that comes with large numbers. Paul's saying their motives are not pure. Now when it comes to motives, one's desires, what they do, right? We need to be careful because we can't read and see perfectly into other people's hearts. So we need to be very judicious and very careful about making judgments about what people's motives are when we don't have access directly to those motives, But if we watch them and if we observe them, Paul says these false teachers, the motives will start to come out, right? They've built a big crowd, perhaps because they're really just, again, after the currency. They want the money. And so you begin to see how a love for the things of the world might choke out that shoot of faith. Or they've built a big crowd and they love the power and the influence it provides and what happens then when they, when they maybe lose a vote on the elder board or, or when they feel the congregation shifting away from them? Do they just hold on and grasp and lean in for more? It's not just doctrine. He's saying it's their desire. That also will show if they are a true or a false teacher. But it's not just doctrine and desires. Notice also thirdly, it's their deeds. That's the third test. How do you identify a false teacher? Look at their deeds. Look, in other words, at how they live their lives. Paul calls them, verse 10, what does he say? They're insubordinate. So these individuals seem to reject authority, and they love to obviously major on controversy. And then in verse 12, Paul does something there, and he kind of throws us, because he calls in verse 12 to the witness stand one of the Cretans' own famous prophets and poets of old. Epimenides this guy who had lived about six centuries before and he was one of sort of the the founding fathers if you will it'll be like you know one of us quoting maybe from Washington or something and he quotes Epimenides who wrote of his own people Cretans are always liars evil beasts lazy gluttons and to be clear Paul's not pointing the finger at every Cretan Right? Otherwise, he'd be gathering into that group these Christians, and he's not saying these genuine Christians are like this. He's specifically saying the false teachers, that statement that Epimenides made about his own people, that is true of these false teachers. Look at their lives. You will see that evidenced. Right, They're liars in the sense their their teaching isn't truthful. They're evil beasts, Paul says, in the sense they're being governed by their appetites, by their, by their passions, by their lustful desires, And Paul's being a little playful here because as an island, Crete was famous for having no wild beasts. There were no wild animals you had to worry about on the island of Crete, except, Paul says, now for these false teachers. They're like the wild beasts on the island. And they're also lazy gluttons, he says, as in self-indulgent. They love to profit and to coast upon the backs of others. And so notice in that how that description that's the description of a kind of anti elder. When I was talking to one of you this week, and he just, like, imagine if these guys were your elders. Imagine what kind of church that would be. No, they're the anti elder. For in the, in the previous verses on overseers and, and elders, Paul says they're to be upright and holy, not liars. He says they're to be lovers of good and not quick tempered and not violent like evil beasts. He says, They are the ones who are to be self-controlled and disciplined and not lazy gluttons. Elders are to be the very things these false teachers are not. So notice what happens then with them in verse 15. We read their minds and their consciences have what? They've become defiled. Which is an ironic twist. For these false teachers are focusing on outward obedience. They're focusing on a kind of ritual observance. They desperately sought to be, it seems, outwardly clean. And yet Paul says they're the ones who are inwardly unclean, right? Whose minds and consciences have been defiled. So they seem to follow the common Jewish belief that anything defiled, right? Unclean food or maybe a dead body, that to come into contact with that would defile the other so if you know someone who is clean would touch a dead body with it is defiled then they too would become defiled they seem to be dealing with that same assumption and back in mark 7 jesus addresses that specific issue right after that quote from isaiah 29 13 and jesus says that there is nothing outside a person that defiles him but the things that come out of a person That defiles him. You see, Jesus is saying it's all about matters of the heart. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, envy. All these things, Jesus says, all these evil things come from within. They defile a person. And so these false teachers wrongly think that maybe, like the Pharisees, sex, certain foods, alcohol... Those things corrupt us when we consume them. And so notice they're locating the problem externally. Their theology is outside in. But Jesus locates the problem internally. Right? Jesus' theology is inside out. Right? It's what inside of, that's what's defiling us. And that's what comes out of us which means that things like sex and food in and of themselves, even alcohol, those things aren't intrinsically corrupt. We're the one who make them corrupt when our hearts sinfully twist and distort them in selfish ways. So we're not corrupted necessarily, not in any way when we come into contact. Again, like things like food, sex, alcohol, they're corrupted when they come into contact with our own sinful hearts. The real problem, Paul's saying, is not ceremonial. It is moral. It is in here. Which is why Paul will go on and say in Colossians 2, for example, that that commands like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says what? Well, they have the appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So in trying to curb the flesh by relying on more commands as opposed to relying on Christ, they've substituted what? They've substituted grace for the law. That's what they've done. Which is to say in verse 16, that though they therefore profess to know God, they deny Him by their works, making them detestable, disobedient, again, unfit for any good work. In other words, what they profess with their lips, they go on and deny with their lives. It's all about external. It's all about ritual, not the internal change that comes through a relationship with Christ. But what does Christ say, right? Remember Matthew 7, you will know them how? By their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. It's part of what we read earlier from 1 John 2. So, you know, maybe you're listening and you've come today. And you might be 60, you might be 6. I don't know how old. But maybe you're listening to all this. And you've gone through life up until this very point, assuming, assuming that if you just did this and if you just avoided this, if you made sure to do that and made sure to avoid that, a few things there, then God would be good with you. That everything is right. And you've made, therefore, religion about a kind of ritual observance, external actions. And of course, that makes religion much easier to manage. It makes it much more attainable. But if that's you recognize, that kind of thinking is exactly the kind of thinking behind these false teachers. It's exactly what they were doing. And Paul says they were what? They were unbelieving and they were defiled. Both Jesus and Paul says, if that's you, you're actually approaching the issue all backward. The real problem is not out there. The real problem is in here. It begins in our own hearts. We need our hearts changed. We need them to be revived. We need our hearts to be made alive. And friends, that's what Jesus specifically came to do. He came To live a perfect life and die as a sinless substitute on a cross, right? Jesus died for us and then Jesus was raised for us so that the Holy Spirit could come and descend and change us from, again, from the inside out and then dwell with us so that we could then fellowship God with us for all eternity. That's the good work that Jesus did. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring about this kind of genuine heart change. Right, Everything else is just window dressing. And that happens when we see our need and recognize where the real problem lies. We repent of our sin and we look to him. We look to Christ and we trust in him. We turn away from ourselves and and sin and self-love and we look to Christ. So friend, ask yourself, truly, what are you trusting in this morning? Are you actually trusting in your obedience? Or are you trusting in Christ's obedience? Are you resting in your work or are you resting in his work? Is it your imperfect righteousness that you're going to hold up before God? Or are you going to point to Christ's perfect righteousness? Which one is it going to be? It makes all the difference in the world. More commands... More laws, more regulations, they can't save you. Only Christ saves. And when we add to the gospel, we subtract from the gospel. And when we also subtract what it means to follow Christ, right? We also do the same. We can destroy it by taking from it or adding to it. So I think stepping back, Paul's helping us see that true religion it's divine in its origin. Right? It's based on divine revelation, not human tradition. Its essence is inward and not outward. It's concerned more with the spiritual and the moral than merely the ritual and the ceremonial. And its effect, key, is what? True heart change. A transformed life. Friends, that's how we identify teaching and teachers that's true versus those that are false. And now that we can better do that, point three, what do we then do with false teachers? Point three, what do we do with false teachers? Notice Paul's command is as simple as it is clear. Verse 11, he says what he says, silence them. Now, Paul doesn't exactly say how they're to be silenced, but that word for silence carries the the image of a muzzle, as in he's saying, muzzle their mouths. Don't give those people a mic. Don't let them teach in your churches. So those who spout false teaching, even when it's couched in pious language, he says they need to be quieted. They can't be given a platform. They're not to hold leadership positions in the church. They're not to be held up as examples in the church. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 13, he says, Titus, you also, don't just silence them. He says, rebuke them, rebuke them, which is rather ironic Because remember who Titus is. Titus is an uncircumcised Greek. And Paul intentionally doesn't bring Timothy. Right, He he leaves Titus there and he says, Titus, yes, you, the uncircumcised Greek, you are the ones who's going to bring this message and this rebuke to these false teachers who likely disdain him for the fact that he's an uncircumcised Greek. As the Brits might say, Paul's being rather cheeky here. But don't miss that word for rebuke. It's the same word Paul used of the elders back in nine, Who are elders but those who are to give sound instruction, or rather give instruction in sound doctrine, and also nine to rebuke those who contradict it. So Titus is to model elder work there in Crete by showing how false teachers are to be admonished and by showing how sound teaching is to be adored by them. And notice how he's to rebuke them sharply. Paul doesn't say take the soft approach. He doesn't say tiptoe around the issues. He says go right at it and do so sharply such that genuine Christians wouldn't be misled, and so that these who think they're believers but are actually unbelievers, your pointed rebuke of them is like a poke and a finger in the chest, and they might be alerted to their own error. And friends, this is the side of pastoral ministry we don't often consider much. So if you're familiar with the image of a shepherd's uh, staff, you know, on, on one side is the, the sort of the curved crook, and the idea was you'd grab the sheep, and if a sheep straying, you gently pull the sheep back in. And we think of what Paul says in Second Timothy about how we gently correct, right, our opponents. And yet there are times when we have to use the other side of the shepherd's staff, times that shepherds have to do that, to what? To fend off the wolves, to beat the wolves such that she- they wouldn't destroy the sheep, And notice that's not just to humiliate them. Paul says that's to heal them, that they, again, might be what sound in their faith. Now, what happens after you've done that? Paul doesn't get into specifics here. But later in chapter 3, verse 10, he's going to say of those who stir up division, he's going to say, what, warn them once in Titus 3.10, then warn them twice, and then he's going to say have nothing more to do with them, which may well be a shorthand reference to church discipline but we'll get there later. Now, just for us as a congregation, I think most of us don't assume that there are false teachers running about here like they were in Crete, and praise God. And one of the reasons why, in God's kindness to us, he's provided us with faithful elders to help keep watch over the teaching of the church. But one of the ways we still can work to protect and guard ourselves against false teaching is by continuing to ensure that those who teach are sound. It's why the elders are going to be careful about who preaches here on Sunday mornings, right? More important than whether or not they're famous is, are they faithful to the text? It's why we're careful to just have members, for example, teach on Sunday nights. It's why we're often passing out books that instruct us in Christian doctrine and encourage us in the Christian life in order to direct us toward good teaching It's why we teach new members our statement of faith and even ask them to agree with it in the form of a signature so that they can both better understand sound doctrine and so that they can defend that doctrine, right? It's why we started BTI so that we could teach through the whole Bible so that our people here, you would increasingly be built into God's revelation, not just more human tradition. It's why we have members and only members serving in the ministries of the church. That's not because we're trying to form some exclusive club. It's not because we think we're all high and mighty. It's because we don't want to unwittingly let wolves right into the sheep pen through the back door. Because fake news or if you will false teaching, it's a real problem. False teaching is like fake news. It deliberately seeks, as we seem to what? To misinform, to deceive the hearer. And yet, Paul says the damage is so much greater because fake news, yeah, it might alter an election, perhaps, but fake news won't alter your eternity. But false teaching absolutely will. Which is why Paul says churches must silence false teachers who deceive the faithful by denying the gospel. False teachers abound. They tend to focus, again, human tradition over divine revelation. They major on outward observance, not inner obedience. And the result is a life unfit and unable to please God. So, friend, who are you listening to? And might that description of a false teacher and what they're trusting in, might that describe you? Can you be confident that you haven't succumbed to such false teaching. I pray that after reflecting on these verses, you are more confident that you know what the true teaching and the true gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Let's pray.